Welcome back to the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this week's episode is entitled Christian Decision-Making, Let Righteousness Direct Your Way. And what we're going to go through, this is actually one of my absolute favorite explanations or ways of thinking about something that's really helped me over the years. But specifically, we're going to get into, I mean, how does a Christian make decisions? And, I mean, we understand a Christian should do, you know, the right thing, the righteous thing. He should not sin. Uh, that's fine. But there's an entire almost philosophy behind the way that a Christian should make a decision that informs kind of the choices that we make. And so I, I want to get into that, the philosophy of decision-making for the Christian. And I think this will be really fascinating. I, I know it is for me to explain it. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to go through a progression of, first of all, how to think about decision-making as a Christian. And then kind of the second half is, practically speaking, how do we actually make those decisions? And we're going to split things up into three different categories of decision-making and basically give you a system by which you can filter any decision that you make through these three steps or these three categories in order to kind of find out what you're supposed to do. And I think what this will do is kind of give you just a really simplified way of making decisions that's informed by Christian principles. So I don't want to give too much away, but we'll let you jump right in to Christian decision-making, let righteousness direct your way. And uh, please leave us a review if you can. Um, it's always good to have more of those. Give us five stars. Follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever platform you enjoy the most. And connect with us on social media at the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you for listening. Proverbs 11.5, the Bible says, The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. I want to talk a little bit this morning about decision-making, how to make decisions. And this is something that I've applied uh, to my own life, and I think it's something that will help you as well. But um, what I've noticed is that a lot of people, Christian people, uh, parents, um, struggle to make what seem to be fairly routine decisions. And I think maybe the reason why that is is as far as like they have, they have a hard time maybe discerning what the right decision is in a particular area. And I think part of the reason is because they don't really have a system by which they make decisions. So you think about it, like a business has that. They have a way that they make decisions in their business. There's kind of a chain of command. There's checks and balances. And in order for a decision to be made, a healthy business, it's not just unilateral from the top down, right? There's a, a system by which the idea or the request goes through to get approved. Well, you have to have a similar process in your life. If you just unilaterally make decisions kind of by individual fiat where you say, I'm just going to do this because reason, that's not the way that you should make a decision. There should be checks and balances. And this would apply to literally anything in your life. It could get, go as, as important as, you know, say you're younger and, and you're trying to figure out where to go to college or what job to take or to get married. Or it can be as simple as, um, should you buy this car or not? Should you buy this home or not? There's a way of making a decision for the Christian that helps to mitigate the possibility of disaster. 
Because that's really what you want to avoid. You want to avoid making a decision that ends in total disaster. And that's easier than you might think. That's, it's, it's much easier to make a decision that has big and bad, sound like Trump, big and bad consequences, um, long term. That's much easier to make that kind of a decision than you might realize. And part of the reason why that is, is because we're really limited in our ability to understand things. So think about it like this. Like, um, so one of the reasons why God, why the nature of God is so amazing is because when we say something like God is good, right? That's a technical statement. We're, we're not just saying God does good things because all of you do good things. If the Bible says that you're not good, right? There's none good, no, not one. And yet everybody in here does good things. But God is good. He is goodness itself. And what that means is that there's no potential for sin in God. That's what that means. In order to be good, there has to be no potential for sin in you. And there's no potential for sin in God. And one of the things that God does is he always does the right thing, right? And there's no possibility that he could ever do the wrong thing. And then, then the question is, well, then how does God make a decision? So how does someone who is good, who is goodness itself, who is good by nature, how does that person make a decision? Well, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't have to be much of a process by which you'd make a decision because good is natural to you, right? So good springs out of you. It's the natural thing. Whatever you want to do is right. And that's why we can say that God does that which pleases him. Okay. Now you and I can't live that way. So God does that which pleases him, and there's no potential that the thing that pleases God is sin. There's no potential for that. So God always does what he wants to do. Always. Everything that God does is a choice. It's one of the reasons why um, the whole works-based mentality is wrong, because there's nothing that you can do to morally obligate God to do something for you. There's nothing you can do to get a completely autonomous, non-contingent being in your debt. You add nothing to him, you take nothing away from him. You can't. He is complete in himself. Does that make sense? So to believe that, well, I can, um, if I live right, then God has to bless me, which is almost the modern church idea, right? It's, it's uh, you know, pull all the right levers and the windows of heaven open automatically like cause and effect and psh, God dumps out a blessing on you. It's like, well, I mean, tell that to Peter and, you know, everybody but John who got crucified and killed. I mean, and martyred. So we have, we have a misunderstanding of the way that God makes decisions. And God can do whatever he pleases and it's always right because of his nature, because he is good. Your nature is not like that. And many, even Christians, are kind of naive in the way that they make decisions because they kind of assume that they are basically good. They assume that their, intent, they assume that their intentions and desires and wants are just kind of naturally good. And if you kind of follow that intuition, that you'll make decent decisions. That's a really bad idea. Listen to me. That's a really bad idea. I saw a preacher. I saw this on Instagram. A preacher preaching in a church. He's behind the pulpit. And he says, uh, some of you are coming up to me and you're quoting Isaiah. And you're quoting Ezekiel. And you're quoting Jeremiah. And you're quoting this person. You're always quoting the Bible. He said, let me tell you something. Abraham didn't have a Bible. Moses didn't have a Bible. Adam didn't have a Bible. Now, here was his conclusion from that. His conclusion was, so you're always bringing up the Bible and you're ignoring your own heart. That's what he said. 
He said, and you're ignoring your own heart. He said, let me tell you something. When you get a word, like what does that mean? When you get a word from God, well, we're changing the definition of word of God right there, right? In, from something that is concrete and unchanging, fixed and immovable, to something that is completely ambiguous, transient, transient and temporary. And that's what his point was. Wait a second. Old Testament saints, some of them weren't navigated by the Bible. They were navigated by feeling, which is not true. They were still navigated by <coughs> revelation. <clears throat> God spoke to Abraham. God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. The idea, though, is that post-Revelation 22, that you know, God still speaks in that type of fashion to us. And it's not the same exact way. But again, all of this is kind of tied into, we kind of make foolish decisions from time to time because we're naive about our nature. And we might think that we have more of a spiritual inclination to do right than we actually do. And if you really understand your nature, if you understand who you are and what you're capable of, you are capable of much evil. You are capable of much evil. I read a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And the dry, one of the driest book, books I've ever read in my entire life. How, how do you make something as scary and frightening and engaging as the Holocaust, like dull and boring? Like it was really, it was very hard to read. I didn't finish it. I think I left like 70 pages because it was just redundant. Like this guy cannot write at all. But a lot of information. But one of his points, and some people have made this point in a better narrative form than others, was that there's no difference to some extent between the SS, the average SS officer and you. There's really no difference. They were family people. They uh, had a wife and kids. Some of them proclaimed to be Christians, said that they worshiped God. But his point essentially is that there was no fundamental difference between the average you know, facilitator of the Holocaust and you and me. There's really no difference. And when you understand the process that those guys went to, we view them as just evil barbarians, animals, demon-possessed people or whatever. No. Nope. Average people. Completely average, normal people who are inundated with the belief system that they swallowed wholeheartedly and slowly over time became the kind of people who were killing other human beings for fun. You can read about the horrible things that they made them do. I mean, they made them dig their own graves and they make them line up in the graves and they would just, you know, they would shoot them. They'd play games with them as they killed them. Um, they would make them uh, like play leapfrog with no clothes on right before they died. Just absolutely humiliate them and a lot of other terrible, horrible things. You could look at a guy like a Joseph Mengele and say, well, he's not human. Well, I don't know what he was. He's definitely a horrible guy. He was the... Um, they call him the butcher of Auschwitz or whatever, something like that. So he would look, as people would get off the train, as the Jews would get off the train, he, would, he was the one to greet them and decide, did they go, I forget if it's left or right, but go left towards experimentation or right towards the camps. And so he would look for people that interested him scientifically. And uh, I mean, literally, he's the embodiment of like the full social Darwin Ism. Like he, that's who he is, which is there's no right and wrong. There's only, you know, the greater good or whatever, which is a really dangerous thing. We're headed quickly back into that under the guise of saving the planet, by the way. So, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's exactly, there's no difference. So 
they get off the train and he would say left experimentation or right towards the work camp. And he had affinity for twins, an affinity for twins and for children. And he would perform horrible experiments on children, especially twins. So you could look at that guy and say he's not human. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of stories about a lot of guys. The, the base and most ignorant explanation of the Holocaust is that for some, ex, for some reason, German men in that period were just crazy or nuts. Or, no, no, no. That's, that's the worst explanation you should possibly come up with. A better explanation is the potential for that amount of evil lies within the heart of every single person. And Hitler tapped into that. So you and I have to admit that about ourselves, that you have the potential for much harm, for much evil. Um, you know, Adam plunged the world into complete and total darkness, in a sense, by doing something that might to him have seemed relatively innocent. So you, here's the thing. You are really bad. You and I are really bad at measuring the consequences of our actions. We're really bad at that. And we might do something we think is relatively innocuous, not that big of a deal. And yet we ever wonder why sometimes there's a big, there's a, there's a disproportion between our concern for certain things and God's concern for certain things. And we go, I don't understand why that's such a big deal. It's like, yeah, that's the problem. You don't understand why it's such a big deal. That's the problem. So I don't know, trust the one who knows everything. So if God knows the end result of every possible outcome, why wouldn't we trust him with our decision making? What we do is we fall back on our finite understanding and say, well, I don't see what could possibly result from this that is not good. It's like, yeah, that's the problem. That's why you need someone called God to tell you what to do. So my point is that we're not very good at making good decisions. I mean, you ever made a decision you thought was relatively good when it ended up being bad? I mean, you could even apply it to your finances. You thought, well, this is, a, this is the best thing that we should do financially. And it ended up being like a terrible decision. It happens all the time. Why? There's things you can't foresee. There's things you can't foresee. Things happen. Some of you are smirking. Sorry to bring up that heartache, and uh, we'll move on. But my point is this, that life is a series of choices. Life is a series of choices. That's essentially what it is. And the quality of your life depends upon the quality of your choices. And I don't mean like, you know, domestic felicity and, you know, how big your bank account is and that type of thing. But that's not what quality of life to some extent means. I don't mean that in an economic sense. But whether you have a good life or a bad life, as far as the Christian context is concerned, won't be determined by what happens to you. Read First Peter. You're going to suffer anyway. You can suffer for evil or you can suffer for good. And we're to follow in the steps of our master and suffer for good. So one of the, here's a very controversial statement. The purpose of life is not to mitigate your own suffering. The purpose of life is not for you to limit the amount of suffering that you experience. That's not the purpose of life. That's the purpose of most people's lives, is to live a comfortable life. That's not, that's not the purpose of life. I'm to pick up a cross and follow him. And within that picture of a cross is the implicit idea of voluntary suffering. I'm to volunteer to suffer that others might benefit. I mean, that's the exact opposite. The Christian ethos is, exact, is the exact opposite of the world's. So, when we say a good life, we mean it within a Christian context. But the choices that I make day by day and the consequences that those choices bring determine whether or not I have a good or a bad life. So then, then the question is, so how should I make choices? And the proverb here says that, to put it simply, I should choose rightly. Now, I mean, that again, 
seems very, very simple. But there's something behind that that I want to show you. So our text says, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. Let's define terms. That word righteous is really an amazing word. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. All right, so listen to this. There's two types of righteousness. There's imputed righteousness. That's the righteousness that God puts in you. There's the righteousness that you have before God positionally. So you might even say judicially. That's what salvation is. So when God says that you are righteous, he's making a judicial statement. So he's making that statement in the same way that a judge would proclaim guilt or innocence or a jury would proclaim guilt or innocence. Does that make sense? That's the same idea. It's not referring to your innate position before him. It's referring to your created position before him that he institutes in you at salvation. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay, so that's one type of righteousness is imputed or positional righteousness, or we might say righteousness of being. That, so here, here's something really cool about the word counted in Genesis 15, 6. I love this. So it says that God counted it righteousness unto him. That word means to weave. God wove righteousness inside of the being of Abraham. That's incredible. He wove it into the very fabric of his being. It's an internal, positional, judicial righteousness that is woven inside of you from the thread of the righteousness of God. Think of that for a moment. That is not something you have in you that you just need to access, which is kind of the, the modern New Age definition of Christianity, which is like, it's already in you. You just got to find it. No, it's not in you at all. It's in God. And the reason why repentance has to come before faith is because you have to admit that it's not in you. And so what God did to Abraham in Genesis 15 was he wove his righteousness into the person of Abraham. That's imputed righteousness, okay? But then there's also practical righteousness. Or you might say relational or horizontal righteousness. So there's the vertical righteousness that I have between me and God. Like when God looks at me, he sees me as righteous because of Christ. And then there's the horizontal righteousness that I act out in the world. Does that make sense? And the mature, perfect Christian, the complete Christian has both of those. He isn't just judicially righteous before God. He's practically righteous before men. And that's what James is explaining when he talks about faith without works is dead. He talks about Abraham and Isaac. That's what James is explaining. He's explaining the relationship between imputed righteousness and practical righteousness. Or he might say righteousness of doing. So you have to do righteous things even as you are righteous, the Bible says. Job 29.14, Job says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Okay, so with Abraham, we have God weaving righteousness inside of Abraham. And with Job, we have him putting righteousness on himself and clothing himself in righteousness. That is not a positional righteousness before God. That is a righteousness of doing. It is a life of right action. The word I put on in Hebrew is the word labash, which means to wrap around as in a garment. So you have woven righteousness and then you have wrapped righteousness. 
You have the righteousness that God sees on the inside that's woven into your being. And then you have the righteousness that everybody else sees, which is the one that you wrap around yourself as a person. Now, here's what we say. Separate sermon. But God sees my heart. This shows the flaw in that way of thinking. I don't have to wrap righteousness around me because I've got righteousness woven inside of me. No. <laughs> wrong. Completely wrong. Here's what you need to say. Instead of saying, but God sees my heart, what you say is, but you know what? People can't see my heart. That's the conclusion that you should make from that line of thinking. Not, but God sees me positionally for what I really am. Yeah, of course he does. Yeah, okay. And what's your point? <laughs> what's your point? That nobody can tell whether or not you're saved? I mean, that's, you know what I mean? Like that, that's not a good point to make. So there's the righteousness that God weaves into you when you believe in the Lord, that's imputed righteousness. And then there's the righteousness that you wrap around yourself daily as you live for the Lord. That's practical righteousness. And this man in Proverbs 11.5 is saved and living out his faith. Now I understand what Proverbs is. Proverbs is not a doctrinal dissertation. That's not what it is. It is a collection of cultural sayings and idioms it is the collective wisdom of the Jewish people that God gave them. That's what it is. And so you got to be careful getting your doctrine out of Proverbs because it's not a doctrinal book. And uh, it's, it's a very practical book and it represents practical wisdom. But this is, this is I believe, technically accurate and is an appropriate use of the text. So then the next word I want to focus on, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. So as a result of this man's salvation and his good living, Solomon describes him as perfect. This word perfect does not mean sinless. It means complete. He's the complete man. So my hand is perfect in one sense and that it has all of its digits, right? So my hand is complete. It is perfect. So when a baby comes out of a womb and they got their 10 fingers and 10 toes and they got all, everything looks just right and proportionate. They're happy and healthy because she's perfect. He's perfect. You're right. Not sinless, but perfect. They are complete so the perfect man is someone who is upright or morally virtuous, which is what that word can mean. He has become, listen to this, proficient at living a practically righteous life day to day. That's his proficiency. He's good at it. He's good at living righteously. He's disciplined at living righteously. That's Job. Job did not forsake his disciplined righteous life just because negative things happened in his life. So this man has the imputed righteousness of God woven into him, and he's wrapped himself in the practical righteousness of God through good works consistently enough to be labeled complete. So the complete Christian is saved and living out his faith. Now here's what the Bible says. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. That's what we want. We want direction. We want to be directed. It's nice to have directions. It's nice to know where you're going. Okay, so the word direct there means to make straight or even. It's like paving a clear and smooth path. Now, here's the good thing about living a righteous life. It makes choices easy. Sin complicates things dramatically. And one of the benefits of living a righteous life is it's a simple life. I don't mean simple as in country bumpkin necessarily. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But it's simple as in it's easy to be discerned. The righteous path is easily, is easily discerned. The choice of the righteous is clear. He does that which is right. You ever been tempted to do something wrong and then you realize, I don't have to do that. 
And there's a freedom that comes up. You're like, I don't have to do that thing. I can walk away. I don't have to say that. I don't have to act like that. I don't have to be like that. That's freedom. That's freedom. And that's a wonderful freedom to have and to act out. So the righteousness of the perfect direct directs his way. The perfect man is directed by his righteousness. Think of that. And both definitions of righteousness would apply to that. He is directed by the fact that he has the righteousness of God woven into his being. That directs him. And then the fact that he's supposed to put on a robe of righteousness daily in the world, that fact also directs him. So his internal righteousness and his desire to keep his garment unspotted from the world lead him to ask simply, what should I do? What should I do? Not what do I want to do, not what do I feel like doing, but what should I do? I mentioned this in the one of the Q&A, I think the Q&A uh, podcast episode where I said that one of the kind of mental tricks or things that I told myself when I was kind of struggling to get healthy was, you know, you, you have all these good intentions when you go to the restaurant and you sit down, you're like, I'm going to get a salad and I'm going to get water and you sit down. But the past 99 times you've been there, you got, you know, Coke and a Big Mac or like whatever it is that you get that you shouldn't get. And you sit down and you go to say, oh, why would you please bring me a Coke? I'm dying for one. I got to have one. I'll take a satisfying Big Mac, please. I need one really bad. My uh, blood sugar is way too low. So what I started to say was, not what do I want to eat, but what will I wish I had eaten? What, when I leave here, when I walk out the door, what will I wish I had eaten? Tomorrow morning, when I wake up, inflamed, <laughs> struggling to walk, everything's creaking and popping, what will I wish I had eaten? So, um, have you ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? It's kind of a weird book, honestly. And because and, it's like, where are you getting your information? I think, the, I think he's a Mormon, actually. I think Stephen Covey's a Mormon. But it's, it's kind of one of those books that he makes a lot of presuppositions, doesn't tell you where they come from. You know, hey, if you do this, it always works. You're like, well, how do you know? He's like, just because I know. It's like, wow, that's cool. Um, that's amazing. But one of the things he says in the very beginning of the book is to visualize the end of your life. So a practical exercise, he says, is to, to basically write your own eulogy and, and pretend that you're at your funeral. What would you want people to say of you? What did you accomplish in your life? What kind of father would you? And that's a very practical and very helpful ex exercise. And the Bible commends us to think that way as well. So you can do that practically. You can say, well, what will I wish I had done? So the righteous man, for example, doesn't make decisions based upon what he wants to do, but based upon what he will wish he had done. Okay, extrapolate that all the way to the judgment seat of Christ. So take that same practical idea that we use at the restaurant to help us make a better choice as far as what we put in our mouth and extrapolate it all to the point where I'm standing before God giving an account for how I live my life. In that moment, what will I wish I had done? The righteous man understands that the righteous nature given to him by God is precious and he lives in agreement with that nature. He makes his decisions based upon the fact that he is righteous. I heard a, this is, illustration is not original to me, but there is a little creature, kind of looks like a, oh man, like a ferret, but it's, it's white. It's called an ermine. And the ermine lives in a wintry climate. And the ermine's 
coat is very, very expensive. It's worth a lot of money. And so people hunt these ermine. And there's only really one way to catch them. They live in these little burrows in the ground, and of course they're the same color as the snow, so they're almost impossible to see. So what the hunters figured out is that what they'll do is they'll take a bunch of trash and just nasty, disgusting stuff, and they'll put it outside of the home of the ermine. The ermine, I'm not sure how to say it. It's the ermine? Out of the ermine. And they'll put it outside of his burrow. And they'll find him in the field, and the dogs will begin to chase him back towards his burrow. As the ermine gets close to his burrow and realizes that the trash is in front of his home, he has two choices. He can go through the trash and spoil his coat, or he can turn and face the dogs. And what this creature will do, this is true, to protect his coat is he will not go through the trash. He will turn and face the dogs and lay down and give up his life to protect his coat. That's an animal. Job said, I put on a robe of righteousness and it clothes me. Is it Jude where it says, keep us unspotted from the world? What are we doing to protect our coat? So we shouldn't make decisions based upon any type of impulsiveness or selfish desire. What do I want to do? Well, I mean, if I was the, the ermine, what I'd want to do is run through the trash and get home. But I'm not really trying to preserve myself as much as I am trying to preserve my righteousness. I mean, what am I apart from my righteousness? <laughs> That's a difficult question. What am I apart from my righteousness in Christ? I mean, I'm nothing. So although I cannot lose the woven righteousness inside of me, the righteousness of being, the righteousness that has been counted unto me, I can lose that practical righteousness, the righteousness of doing. So I have to establish that my principle for decision-making is, I am righteous, so I should live righteously. Therefore, I make righteous choices. I make right choices because I should live righteously, and I should live righteously because I am righteous. And we're not talking about the feeling of righteousness, which comes and goes, but the fact of righteousness. Now, 1 John 3, 7, the apostle said, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So we act in agreement with nature. One of the things that happened in salvation is we received a new nature, a righteous nature. And the fact of the existence of that new nature is all I need to acknowledge this new path of decision-making and to walk down it. So the process by which the righteous person makes decisions is simple, and it makes our paths straight and clear. What do we do? We do that which is right. So the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. But notice those last two words, his way. The word way means the course of his life. So he directs his course of life according to what is right. I mean, listen, we have been asked so many times in our adolescence and high school, college years, what are you going to do with your life? What direction are you going to go in? What's your course? What's your path? And although the specifics can be difficult, and the Bible's not a book of specifics, 
uh, especially in New Testament ways of thinking, because there's just too much variety, culture to culture, generation to generation. But the principle is the same. <laughs> the, the course of my life, how I'm going to direct my life, the path that I'm going to walk is going to be the path of righteousness. And when I'm faced with a decision, whether it's where I go to college or who I marry or what house do I buy or whatever, I make all of those decisions essentially through the same filter, which is, which is the path of righteousness? So when I'm faced with a decision, the righteous man considers whether or not this course of action would be righteous like he is in Christ. After all, I mean, shouldn't a Christian's life be lived as an outward reflection of the righteousness of God within? Okay, so let's tie it all together and then get into the practical stuff. The person who is saved and living right is basing their decisions, should base their decisions, not on their emotions or their desires, even if they're good desires, by the way. The Bible says that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So it's not about my desire, my feeling, even if it's a good desire or a good feeling, but rather based upon that which is right and is a reflection of the righteousness that God has woven into my heart. And this makes my decision simple. What do I do? Ain't no problem. I, I figured it out a long time ago when I realized I was made righteous by Christ. I do that which is right. So what we can do with this information, this philosophy, this way of thinking, is we can apply this to our lives to help us make the actual practical decisions in our daily, weekly, monthly, yearly life. So letting righteousness direct my way means simply that I follow right wherever it leads. So when making decisions, there's three basic categories the decision may fall into as far as its relation to right and wrong. So, so here's kind of a progression that you can go through as a Christian to make sure that you're following the path of righteousness and you can apply this to any possible decision that you need to make. So the first is this. The first category of decision that you need to deal with is the type of decision where you're choosing between right and wrong. So the first type of decision is choosing between right and wrong. So when I'm faced with a potentiality, I should ask myself, what is right? And if the answer presents itself, then that's the way that I should go. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. So if I have a situation at work where, let's just say, a manager comes to me and says, hey, I need you to fudge the numbers. And I think, oh man, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Well, I mean, how I view the decision determines the decision that I make. So if I view the decision as the choice between uh, keeping my job and losing my job, if I place it in the category of self-preservation, then maybe I'll do something that's fundamentally wrong, fundamentally wicked, sinful, in order to preserve myself. Because I think, well, I mean, that's just the kind of decision that I had to make. That's the situation I was in. It's like, no, that wasn't the actual category of decision. That type of decision was a decision between right and wrong. So you should ask yourself in that situation, not what is expedient, not what is helpful, not what preserves me, but what is right. And then what's amazing is when you ask that, you know, I don't want to say be careful when you ask that, but be aware that when you ask that, you're going to receive an answer. When you ask what is right, I mean, you should expect the Holy Spirit to inform you of that which is right. So if I ask what is right, the answer presents itself, well, then that's obviously what I should do. But a problem is that sometimes I have multiple choices. 
right? What do I watch? What do I listen to? What do I wear? Who to hang out with? Uh, which job to take? Which friends to have? Which books to read? Um, you know, what type of practices am I involved in and not involved in? And there, there's a multiplicity of choices. So then, then what do I do when the, the answer, the obvious right thing isn't obvious? It's blended in with a bunch of other possible choices. Well, the first thing that I want to do is I want to eliminate the wrong choices. So if you're making a decision, any decision, any practical decision, the first thing you have to do is eliminate all of the sinful choices. Why is that? Well, because the wages of sin is death, and there's no caveat for how I feel about it. So I could feel like I'm doing the right thing, but if the thing that I'm doing that I feel right about is actually sin, then the product of that action will be death, and I'll be confused. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I had peace. One of the things that really disturbs me about this present generation of Christianity, and it's so pervasive, is two things. One, this I have peace mentality, where we make decisions based upon the peace that we have, not based upon the principles of the Word of God. Jesus did not have peace in the Garden of Gethsemane, but He made the right decision. He made the right decision, even though He lacked peace fundamentally. Now, peace is important. Uh, peace is indispensable, we might say. But we should never sacrifice our principles for some type of carnal peace. And then the second one, when people are making decisions, is they throw out this idea that, well, I prayed about it. I prayed about it. Well, you should pray about it. You should absolutely pray about it. But it's interesting to me that many of the people who throw out this, this, blanket, uh, this, this blanket of permission to where they're able to cover any decision they want to make because they say, well, I prayed about it, that really it's not about the prayer itself. It's about informing God of the decision that I want to make and then making that decision and then using the excuse of prayer as a justification for my action. And, well, I mean, again, it doesn't matter if I prayed about it or if I have peace. If the decision is sin, it leads to the same death as if I knew that what I was doing was wrong. So I have to eliminate the poor choices. Now, why is that? Well, because I'm righteous. That's why. And I want to make choices that reflect that. I don't want to make wicked choices like the guy in the second half of our text and fall. I want the blessing that comes with doing right more than I want the temporary pleasure of doing that which is wrong. So I let righteousness direct my way. What would righteousness do? Where would righteousness go? What is right? So the first thing I have to do is eliminate all of the poor, wrong, or sinful choices. Okay, so once I've gotten rid of all those, I've said, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to lie for you. I'm not going to steal for you. I'm not going to do any of those things for you. Then maybe I'm left with one obviously right thing to do. Tell the truth, for example. Okay, well, I should do that. But, you know, not every choice is like that. So sometimes our choice is between right and wrong. We eliminate the wrong choices and one right option stands out. Great, then that's the thing that you should do. But what do you do when you have a ton of choices, you get rid of all the sinful choices, but you're left with varying choices that are all right to some degree. So what do you do about that? Well, this we would call choosing between good, better, and best. Choosing between good, better, and best, or choosing between right on a spectrum. So if there's no obvious right thing left versus you know, all of the wrong choices, instead there's multiple choices 
all of which are right, but to varying degrees, what should I do? Well, the righteous man should ask himself, which is the most right? Which is the most right? So, for example, if you were trying to find a job and you said, well, okay, so um, I could perform any possible job in the world, all right? Well, in all of those possibilities are things like being a hitman, um, <laughs> being, a, uh, being a bartender, owning nightclubs. You, know, you should probably eliminate those choices along with things like drug dealer and things, terrorist. So you, you should not do those things. You should eliminate those sinful choices. Now, the thing about that, is, though, is that even though you've eliminated every single possible wrong choice as far as what you should do with your career, you're going to be left with a ton of choices that could be right for you, but to varying degrees. So what should you do? Well, you shouldn't just settle for any one of those potential right jobs. What you should do is you should try to find the most right job. So for example, if you're left between two choices, which is a situation people find themselves in often, where they, they basically have two or three choices, something like that, for a job or a position. And one of the jobs does not force you to work on Sunday, and the other two do, and you know all of the things being equal, that's a pretty obvious choice. I, I don't even have to pray about that, necessarily. I don't have to say, I mean, God, which one do you want me to have? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we should just step out on faith and say, I think that God wants you to have the job that allows you to walk in his will most perfectly, right? I mean, that's obviously what God wants you to do. So if you're left with choice A and B, for example, I, I ask, well, what is right? And the answer is, well, I mean, they're both right. They're both potentially good choices. So A is right when it stands by itself, and choice B is right when it stands by itself. So then I have to ask, how do I decide between them if necessary? And the question is, which one is most right. So for example, um, reading your Bible is good. It's, it's very good. Going to church is good. It's very good. But on Sunday morning, those two right things that both by themselves are completely 100% right come to some extent in conflict with each other. Where for example, you have to make a decision. Do I stay at home and read my Bible or do I leave my home and go to church? You can say, well, it's right to stay at home and read your Bible. It is, but in the context of the Lord's Day, which is the most right? Okay, going to church and assembling with other believers is the most right on Sunday. So I can't then choose a lesser good, which by the way, the definition of sin means to choose the lesser. So, you know, working is good. As a man, I should work. But if I only work and I neglect my family, that's a poor choice. That's not the most right thing. So... Basically, I want to eliminate all of the wrong choices and I'm left with either one right choice, then I obviously do that, or if I'm left with a multiplicity of right choices, I place them on a spectrum and I judge them and try to put them in categories of good, better, and best. Because listen, why wouldn't you want to make the best possible choice? I mean, that's what you should want to do. You shouldn't want to settle for, I mean, yeah, I want to make like moderately good choices. You don't do that at a restaurant. You walk in, sit down, and go, I mean, could you tell me kind of what your middle-of-the-road dishes are? I don't want anything that good. I don't want the best that you have. I want, you know, kind of that thing that people walk away and go, I mean, it was okay. That's, that's the kind of menu item I'm in the market for. Do you have a lot of that? No, you want the best possible thing. And you sit there in agonizing anxiety looking at the menu saying, I don't know which one is the best. 
So why wouldn't you want the best possible life? Okay, then you have to make the best possible choices. But to do that, you have to eliminate all the wrong choices because those lead to death. But then you also have to eliminate the good or better choices that are not the best. And then number three, here's what might happen. Okay, well, if you're left with one obvious best choice, then great, do that thing. But sometimes, and this is actually really cool, sometimes the decision isn't between right and wrong or between good, better, and best, but sometimes you have multiple choices, all of which are equally good. And in that case, I'm choosing between equal goods, I get to exercise my preference. So if I've eliminated the poor choices, and I examine the choices left and determine there's no obvious most right thing, and instead all of the choices are equally right, I should ask myself, which do I want to do? That's fun, I'll give you an example. So let's say you have $15,000 to spend on a car. Okay, so you, know, you could say, are there uh, right and wrong choices? Well, this isn't necessarily an area where we would say that there would be a sinful choice for a car. I mean, unless, unless you know, it's a Budweiser truck or something, maybe that could be categorized as sin. But so, you know, basically you can choose the car that you want, but there's good, better, and best options. So, you know, there's good cars for $15,000 for, for the money, and then there's cars that, aren't, cars that aren't as good for the money, and there's cars that are great for the money. Uh, for example, if you've got a family of four, you probably should buy a two-door coupe. <laughs> That's not the best option for you. And you could even make a case that, I mean, if your family suffers uh, because of a financial decision that you make, even though it might seem relatively benign, that that is sin. So choosing a two-door coupe when you got six kids and then they got to stay at home all the time is probably a sinful choice. But if you say, okay, well, I mean, basically I'm going to buy a Toyota. Okay, fine. I'm going to buy a Toyota, whatever. I'm going to buy a Toyota, um, you know, Highlander or something. Buy a Toyota Highlander. And then you say, okay, but they have all these colors. And they have white, they have red, they have blue. Who would buy blue? They have black, they have gold. And God, I don't know which choice to make because they're all so wonderful. Okay, well, here's the great thing about that choice. That choice is really easy because you're choosing between equal goods. There's nothing better about red or white or black or blue than there is about any other color. So then you get to exercise your preference because there's no difference. Okay, so... This exercise essentially should help me make the majority of my decisions. I weed out the wrong choices, because I obviously don't want to commit sin. Then I'm left with either one obviously right thing or multiple right things that I can place on a spectrum of good, better, and best. And then if I have multiple best options, all of which are equally good, then I can exercise my preference. So let's take it, for example, of uh, which job should I take? I could say, well, which one's right? Well, if wrong choices emerge, if wrong choices emerge, Eliminate them. So maybe you're left with one option or multiple options. If one, then take the job that you want. If multiple, I should ask myself, is there a most right job? Would something more right suffer if you chose this job? Are you taking better instead of best, for example? So what would be the most right decision? If there's no obvious answer and they pass these criteria as well, ask yourself, which job would I prefer? So you can apply this to your job, college, TV, music, language, dress, etc., whatever decision that you need to make. So as you make choices, let righteousness direct your way. Do right or do what's most right or use preference to choose between equal goods. But whatever you do, 
do right. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us five stars and a glowing review, and make sure you're following the podcast so you get new episodes sent directly to your phone every week. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at the Zach Evans Podcast. God bless. Thank you.